0: All right, so we uh, try to, it's really weird here. You guys need to to get a sense, like there's no video here. There's everybody sitting in silence while that video is playing, and we realize from the feed that the video didn't work out great. We will post it again on both our Facebook and YouTube pages, and we'll work out the kinks to do that in the coming weeks. Sorry for those of you that uh, were waiting for your big moment here and didn't get to see it quite with the, the music in the background too high, but we will post that after after the service so you can actually see that video and in the coming weeks we'd like to do that more often um, we're in revelation again chapter four and five and uh i want to clarify again this this book is not called revelations it's called a Reve- the revelation of jesus christ it's a picture of jesus in greek that word is apocalypsis which means an unveiling Uh, We get apocalyptic from it, and we think of 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 end-of-the-world war movies from apocalyptic. But what it really means is to reveal or to uh, unveil. And so last week, we looked at the letters to the churches, to these actual churches, uh, a book written to speak into their situation and and that we can draw conclusions out of for our situation, uh, reminding us that God is with us just as He is with them, that He knows what's going on, And also that the call to overcome, that was the big thing we focused on last week, the call to overcome. (laughs) I'm seeing furrowed brows up there. Everything going okay on the tech end? Sig, read. Keep going. Keep going. Okay. Like I say, it's weird here. But the, the call last week to overcome, remember it said it to every church, to overcome, to overcome, but the middle one explained what that would be was to keep the deeds of Jesus, to, to live like He would live. And I, I told you last week, there's three rules for the Revelation series. First, uh, for a moment, be willing to let go of your previous ideas about what Revelation meant. Uh, you don't have to let them go forever, but but keep your mind open to different ideas. Second, read the text, read it a lot, and read it out loud. Apocalyptic literature is good to be read out loud. And third, tell someone what you're seeing, hearing, thinking, or learning. I actually got an email this week from somebody who was talking about what they had done with what they had heard out of the sermon, and I love that. It, I said it was the highlight of my week, and she wrote back and said, it doesn't take much <laughs> to be a highlight for your week, but that, I love that, that you're actually thinking about this outside of this, these few minutes that we talk about it. This week, we move from the letters into this picture of the throne room of God in chapters 4 and 5. It is very visual. Kids, as Jake said, it, it'd be a great thing for you to try to draw some of these images, or if you've got your Legos out, if you want to build as we read, I just want you to hear... Uh, from chapter 4 and 5, this picture of the throne room of God. There's two pictures in Revelation that I call the good news of Revelation. It's chapter 4 and 5 and chapter 21 and 22. Now, there's a lot in between that's very difficult news, hard to hear news. But these two chapters and the two at the end of the book very much are, are, are the gospel, I think, as we see it in Revelation. So let's start Revelation 4, verse 1, reading to the end of chapter 5. After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, "'Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this.' And at once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, and the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were twenty-four other thrones, and seated on them were twenty-four elders.' They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. They were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a face like a man and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. And day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints." And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. And then I looked and heard the voice of many angels Numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This text starts with a door standing open in heaven. Once again, that unveiling or that revealing, uh, the door is open for us to see beyond what we're experiencing to what's going on behind the scenes. And and I I want today, as we read this text, to reflect on what it means to be seeing through the open door. Everybody needs a sig. I texted Sig this week and I said, I'd love to have a door on the stage. And Sig gave me not only a door, but a fancy, very revelation-like handle here. And, and the whole idea is, is, this is our existence out here. This is what we're experiencing. And John, all of a sudden, at the beginning of this, the door opens and he sees a monitor and an amp and all those things that you see through the door. He looks into a whole different area, a whole different realm. To see what's going on. What does it mean for us to be seeing through the door? You see, we, if, if our vision of what we see in the world is CNN or Fox News or even good old CBC, if that's all that we see, we're in trouble. Because John says we need to look beyond that. We need to look through this open door and see what's going on in the throne room of heaven. It's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. It says in, in the beginning of chapter 4, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open. Now I don't want to, I, I ragged on the NIV translation last week. I'm going to do it a little bit again here. Um, that phrase, there before me, is the Greek word, edu. And it, it's, a, it's a command. It's not a statement. It's a command. And usually you see it translated in the scripture as, behold. Or look. So what it really says there is, John says, after this I looked, and look. He's telling us to look. Behold, it's a command that he's given to us. And what do we see through this open door? I'm going I'm to highlight six things. There's a million things in that throne room. I can't wait. If you kids build with Lego this throne room, I want to see pictures of it for sure. Um, but, but as we look through, there are several things we see. First, we see a throne with someone on it. 47 times in the book of Revelation, there is a throne. And not only in this picture is there a throne, but there's someone seated on it. It says in verse 3 the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Now, if you're a Jewish thinker, there's these Old Testament lights that go on in your head as you read this. Jasper and carnelian were mentioned. In Exodus, there was the, the high priest would wear an ephod, a, a, a breastplate, um, as he went in to do his service in the temple, and there was a, a precious stone. There were 12 of them, one for each tribe of Israel, on his chest as he, as he did his worship. And it was, this, it was an example of the people of God, the whole people, all 12 tribes, coming into the throne room of God. And, and the first stone on that breastplate that's mentioned was carnelian, and the last one is jasper in the Old Testament. And the implication is that God's throne room, this is a place for all the people of God from the first to the last. And then it talks about this rainbow. And of course, you know, Genesis 9, there's this rainbow of God's promise to protect and not destroy after the flood. So the the image there of this one seated on the throne who looks like Carnelian and Jasper and has a rainbow encircling the throne is to to say this, this one on the throne is faithful to protect his people, all of them, from the first to the last. There's a throne with someone on it and even more thrones. There's 24 other thrones with 24 elders we see in verse 4, dressed in white with golden crowns. Now, Roman thinking would think uh, bodyguards because very often the emperors, not just the kind of the governors and the, the proconsuls, but the emperors would have 24 bodyguards sitting in the throne room, protecting the emperor at all times. But for, the, for Jewish thinking, 24 is 12 and 12, right? And for the early church, there's this idea of, of the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles. This fact that, that what's seated in the throne room is actually the whole representative of the whole people of God. And that's, that's consistent with the idea that we will reign with God. At the end of Revelation, in, verse 20, in chapter 22, verse 5, it's talking about us. It says they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun for the Lord God will give them light. And then it says, and they will reign forever and ever. This idea of us reigning with God is all throughout the scripture. James 1.12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. 1 Peter 5, four, When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Even in the letters last week in chapter 2.10 Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you'll suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death and I will give to you the crown of life. And in chapter 3.11 I'm coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take Your crown. See, there's this idea that in this throne room there is a representative of the people of God. Ultimately, it will be the whole people of God ruling over creation. You see it. We we read that in 510. You've made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. So you've got this someone seated on the throne, God the Father. Obviously, you've got uh, 24 thrones around ruling with him, the elders uh, representing all the people of God. And we also see the spirit around the throne and the sea. It says there's seven lamps, which is the seven spirits of God, or some translations will say the sevenfold spirit of God. We don't believe there are seven spirits of God. We believe the seven is a symbolic number there, talking about the complete spirit of God, the wholeness, the fullness. And if you notice, all the Trinity is here, right? There's, there's the Father seated on the throne. There's the spirit of God in the sevenfold spirit. And in chapter five, you see the Son, the Lamb of God coming in. But we also see this sea of glass as clear as crystal. Now there's lots of ideas when it comes to the sea in the Bible. If you read through and look, the sea is a very visual, powerful metaphor, a way of teaching all throughout the Bible. The Red Sea was what the, the children of Israel had to cross to get into the promised land. But when you look at the sea specifically in Revelation, the sea is the place that opposes the will of God. In chapter 13, when the beast comes up, he comes up out of the sea. It's this idea of chaos and struggle. All the ancient myths about creation in the Middle East, typically the stories that people told to say, where do we come from? Typically there was this chaos and evil in the sea and some divine being uh, fights with the sea and brings order out of chaos. And that's why you, I, I mean, when you read Genesis, what's the first thing you read? The Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the water. It was, it was saying to the people um, uh, that, that God is the one who controls the chaos of the sea. See, the, the sea was a symbol of chaos, power that cannot be controlled. Um, and, and, and what do we see in the presence of God? That sea in the throne room is clear. It's like glass. It's completely calm. I'll, I'll touch on that more at the close, but the, the imagery is that while people are living in the middle of chaos, they need to realize that through the door in the throne room of God, chaos is, is subdued, that it's, it's calm. And then in verses 6 to 8, these four living creatures. I'm reading through Ezekiel in my own kind of devotional. And just yesterday I was reading the first couple chapters of Ezekiel with these four creatures that are mimicked almost exactly same kind of ideas. They're not your ordinary images. And if you're going to get who those four creatures are, you've got to answer two questions. Who are they and what are they doing? And I think the key to the understanding of it is, is to see these four living creatures for who they represent. Number four symbolizes, um, you know, seven symbolizes wholeness and and completeness, but four does as well, specifically in regards to creation. And we may not realize that, but that's even found its way into our language because we talk about the four corners of the globe. How many of you have ever seen corners on a globe? There are no corners on a globe. But we say that because it's talking about the totality. This number of four represents the fullness of creation. And then when you see the faces, the human which would be the head of the created order that God put Adam and Eve over his created order. The lion, the head of the wild beasts, the king of the jungle, right? The ox, the head of the domestic animals, and the eagle, this, this head of all the flying beasts. What, what, what they're saying through these four beasts is that they represent the whole of creation. They surround the throne and the church. And what does creation do? We, we know that from Scripture too, from Psalm 19. Uh, the, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. All of creation is shouting about the glory of God, and that's exactly what we see these four creatures doing. They're seeing God for who he is, and they're telling us who he is. When they see the one on the throne constantly, day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. constantly all day, all night. I know some of you guys have complained to me about these worship choruses that go over and over and over and repeat and repeat. Well, in heaven, there is a worship course going over and over and over. And you talk talked to me about vain repetition. Let me tell you, this is not vain. This is repetition that is not vain. It's the truth. It's creation saying, this is who God is. Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who, who was, who is, and who is to come we'll talk more about the impact of what they're saying at the end too the next thing we see is a scroll that is sealed in chapter 5 uh, in his right hand he holds a scroll with seven seals on it now you know scrolls roll out like this and so to seal them they would the place where they rolled together there would be these seals and there's a lot of discussion about What this is. You read commentaries and everybody's got an idea and some of them are worse than others. Uh, Some people say it's the Old and New Testament. Um, I'm not sure why nobody can open the Old and New Testament in the whole earth. Uh, Some people say it's God's sentence of judgment against the enemies of the church. Some people say it's the text of the book of Revelation or at least the next few chapters. Some people say it's the title deed to the planet Earth. Um, which bothers me a little bit because I think the earth is the Lord's regardless and he doesn't need somebody to help him own the earth, it's his. I, I, I tend to think it's something very simple. Uh, if you see a king sitting on the throne in the days of John and he's got a scroll in his hand, to me it's a royal proclamation. It's some, some type of way of communicating the desire of the king to be enacted in his kingdom. He's issuing a decree. Now, A lot of times scrolls with writing on both sides were were about property, buying or debts. When debts were were written, there would be writing on both sides of the scroll. And so there is this idea of of something about this scroll is there's a debt that needs to be forgiven. There's something that needs to be paid. We see that down in verse verse 9. It talks about he is worthy with his blood. He purchased this lamb, purchased men for God. And I think the idea is there, but it's bigger than just forgiveness. I think this proclamation concerns the destiny of humanity. Now, there are scholars, Barclay's one of them, and he says what he thinks what's in this scroll is God's will, his final settlement of the affairs of the universe. And and he bases that off the fact that that very often uh, emperors, rulers, kings, would leave a will and testament to their descendants who would follow, stating their wishes for what needs to come about. And very often, in fact, most times, in, in Vespasian and one other guy, let me find his name, Augustus, they both had a, a royal proclamation that they left for their sons and grandsons. And, and the law said it had to be sealed by seven different witnesses to verify that it was exactly what he thought it was. And so there would be seven blots of wax, seven seals on this scroll. So I, I think what, what we see in his hand here, is, is the implementation of what God desires for his creation. It's his royal decree, his plan for the coming of his kingdom, which we're going to see in the following chapters, from 5 all the way up to 21, 22. This, as the scroll, scroll is opened, as the seals are broken, things start happening. There's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, there's seven bowls, and all these things, I think, are just uh, pictures uh, 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 looking at what's going to happen and backing up and looking at it from a different angle and backing up and looking at it from a different angle. It's, it's the desire of God for the world. And the, be, the best word, it's a word I, I think that uh, George W. Bush came up with, I'm sure he was not the first one, regime change. What we're going to see happening as these scrolls are opened is, is the kingdom of God overthrowing, destroying, and replacing the kingdom of the world, it's, and, and it, it's gonna be conflict. It's gonna be painful, it's gonna be difficult. We'll see that in the coming chapters. But as John sees it, he sees this scroll, he realizes this is God's plan for the future, for the world, and then he weeps because no one can open it. Here's, here's this Someone on the throne that is is God of the universe and he has this proclamation and yet nowhere in his creation is anybody that can actually bring it about. And yet then he sees a lion, a root and a slain lamb. John's weeping. We'll get back to that too. And a voice says, do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the powerful, victorious one, the lion, the king of the beast, has triumphed. And then it says the root of David. Right, not, not the descendant of David, but the king who was the root, the one that David came out of. It's, it's a messianic title. This lion of the tribe of Judah, this root of David has triumphed. He can open the scrolls. And then John turns to look at this lion of the tribe of Judah, this victorious, powerful one. And he sees a lamb looking as if it has been slain. What does that look like? Try to envision that in your head. Is it, is it a lamb with just blood all over its, its wool? Is its throat slit? What, what does it look like? A lamb, he's, he's turning to see this lion of the tribe of Judah as he looks through the doorway. This root of David, this messianic conqueror, this, this overcomer, and he sees a slain lamb. It's the one who died as a lamb. And, and, and we've got to remember this is the method of God. He rules by serving. He overcomes by sacrificing. And it's a radical shift in our thinking, one so counterintuitive that we always seem to forget the way God likes to do things. There's so much to see here, what's behind the door, but I want to move on. I Really, Jake and I were talking, we could do a series of 10 sermons just on chapter 4 and 5. There's so much in there, but I want to talk about the impact of seeing reality Clearly. See, there's a surprise that comes from seeing reality at a deeper level, from looking through the door. We, we think, man, that'd be great if I could just get a glimpse of what God's up to in the situation that we're living in right now. If I could just see behind and, and realize what He's doing, if I could just get a glimpse, that would be amazing for me to understand. Well, it is great. It's overwhelming, but it's also painful for John, right? When John sees that scroll and the throne room, when he sees that God has a plan for all of humanity and there's this idea that maybe it's not gonna come about, he weeps. I've talked to you about my friend, Matt Otten, like a brother to me, really. And one of the things I realized about Matt, as I reflected, Matt had the ability to write songs and he could could see deeper than other people. He could grasp truth in a way that made it powerful. And, And I used to say he could see beauty Way further, like if if I can see the beauty of God's creation and the beauty of the world and the beauty of what God is up to to here, Matt had this ability to go to here and see it in a bigger scope. But what I realized with Matt is going to here also brought him to the other end of the spectrum as far as evil and difficulty. He could see the pain. As you begin to see more clearly the beauty of what God's doing, as John sees this beautiful throne room with this sea of glass and this scroll, this proclamation of what God's going to do, he also weeps because he doesn't think it could happen. There's nobody in all of creation. And, and, and that's why we see John weeping for a broken world, to see that God is on the throne, to see that in his hands he holds the, this scroll concerning the destiny of all creation and to think for a moment that no one in all of creation could bring it about. It breaks John down to his very core, and I, I was thinking about those times for me. I talked just a few weeks ago. I better get a drink of water before I start this. I talked just a few weeks ago about when my dad died. Right? I, was, I was here, my whole family, except for me, my siblings, my mom, um, were in the, ho- in the hospital room with my dad. They were all seeing hymns, and, and they had Skyped me in, so I had my computer open and was listening to them. We didn't have any video at that point. Um, but I was listening to them all sing, and then at one point, I heard one of my brothers say, I can't remember if it was Mike or Ken, but one of them said, he's gone, Jeff, he's gone. And, and then it was over, like there was no reason for me to stay on the phone, other than just a few comments, and we shut it down. And, and I was in my house all by myself, it was a study day, and nobody was home except for me. And I just remember, after shutting that, the finality of shutting it down, and, and I just felt it right here, you, you felt that right in your gut, right, just this deep overwhelming sadness, and I just wept and wept, and I, I, I couldn't express what I was thinking, and I didn't, I didn't know what to expect, but it, I didn't have to try. It wasn't like I was thinking, you should be sad, your dad just died. Same thing happened with my grandmother, who I was very close to. Um, she died when I think I was 20, maybe 21, and I was one of the pallbearers, and, and I kept thinking, this is going to hit me, it's going to hit me, I, I, I mean, I'm sad, but I remember driving from the funeral service to the graveside. It was about a 15 minute drive and I was in the car by myself. And just out of nowhere, I feel this deep grief. And the whole drive, I'm thinking I should pull over because I'm, I'm just sobbing. And I think you've all had moments like that when we felt pain and fear and emptiness in a way that we could never. Accept. This is John's moment, right? He feels that brokenness. But he doesn't stay there because he he moves to seeing the worthy one. There's this weeping and this brokenness for lost possibility. And then the voice says, don't weep. All is not lost. There is one who is worthy. And see, the only thing that can bring hope to our broken world and the pain that we feel is to be able to clearly see Jesus as the one coming to bring about the completion of the plan of God. And that's the rest of the book of Revelation. God's plan for the renewal and the remaking of, of all things. And as we walk through the next 8 weeks, you'll get a, glance, a glimpse of this. And sometimes it's really hard to look at what what happens as these kingdoms clash as the kingdom of the world is completely overthrown and the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. But if if you catch it, if you can see it, you'll find yourself joining what I call a ripple of worship. We see that start in chapter 4 as the creatures worship and the elders follow their lead, right? These four creatures are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then the elders say, you are worthy, Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. Look, creation and the elders are are joining in this ripple of worship. And then in chapter 5, we get the full picture of it. The creatures and the elders in verse 9 sing a new song. It has to be a new song because nothing like this has ever happened before. It says you're worthy because of creation in chapter 4. And in chapter 5, it says you're worthy because you're... Creation is going to be recreated. Look at verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5. You're worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on his earth. Everything's changing and there's this ripple of worship it starts with the creatures, then the elders bow. then there's the, uh, this new song, and then the angels join in in verse 12. The angels, thousands and tens of thousands upon tens of thousands, and they sing, you're worthy to receive, I want you to count, power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Seven things. You're worthy of everything is what that's saying. The angels are joining in. And then in verse 13 of chapter 5, when the world hears all this this ripple of worship that's rippling out from around the throne, it says, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. No one can stop the ripple of worship. All All of creation, as this plays out, bows a knee to God. Have you ever had a moment of awe? A time when you think, if I say anything, I'm going to mess this moment up. I'm sure you may have had those moments. Well, this is that moment. In 5.14, the only way to end it, it says the four living creatures said, Amen, so be it. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Everything is quiet here. It's, it's all, this worship is happening, and there's this moment of, it's just unbelievable awe. And now we move from that to living out the revelation today. How do we live that out? How do we take this picture through the door of the throne room? Despite the chaos that we're living in, how do we take that and live it out? That's what we're called to do. James says in James 1.22, don't just listen to the word and deceive yourselves, do what it says. So how do we live out? How do we become a revelation of Jesus everywhere we go? You know, I think, we do it through our words and actions we talked about last week. And in this time of COVID and all the fear and anxiety that it inspires, we're called to be a clear revelation of the reality of what's going on underneath it all for the whole world. And there's, I'll give you four things to do. I think there's four. If I cheat you, I'll give you another one next week. The first thing we need to do is, is have a willingness to see the whole truth honestly. To see the whole truth honestly. The image of John weeping is powerful and important. It's one that cuts us right to the gut. Far too often I think we try to deny or ignore the pain and the brokenness of the world. And I think we have good motivation. We don't want to focus on the negative. We want to be positive. We want to to focus on the good that's coming. But sometimes we run there too fast. And when we talk about the good, it sounds like we're not even really being honest about the bad. We want to speak words of trust and hope, but often it just comes across as cliches because we're not really acknowledging the pain that is all around us. And I'm not just saying this myself. Scripture talks about acknowledging the pain. It it actually gives us examples. Jeremiah, the prophet, he was called by God to speak God's words to the people. And in Jeremiah 4, just listen to Jeremiah's words. Oh, my anguish, my anguish, I writhe in pain. Oh, the agony of my heart, my heart pounds within me. I cannot keep silent, for I've heard the sound of the trumpet. I've heard the battle cry. Disaster follows disaster. The whole land lies in ruins. In an instant, my tents are destroyed. My shelter in a moment. And you say, Jeremiah, wait a second. You're the prophet of God. You've got to give hope. Well, he, he starts by describing things as they really are. He starts by looking. Remember, we're told to look. He starts by looking honestly at the world. If you keep on in Jeremiah 4, I looked at the earth, and it was formless and empty, at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruins before the Lord, before his fierce anger. Jeremiah spoke words of hope but he was honest about what he saw first. Far too often we want to ignore it, we just run away like it doesn't actually happen. And part of being the revelation of Jesus is seeing honestly the truth of the world, feeling it deeply because when we feel it deeply it opens up something. Have you ever been with someone grieving and you're grieving too and there's a connection there? There's something that happens when two people grieve at the very core of who they are. They're knit together. And sometimes we have to first be honest about the brokenness of the world at a level that allows the brokenness of the world to realize we see it. And then, then the grace of God and the, 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 the thing we're proclaiming can come into that. Walter Brueggemann talks about Jeremiah. I love this quote. The prophet is not addressing behavioral problems. He's not telling people how to act better. He's not even pressing for repentance, saying, you better shape up. Those are my additions for those of you that are here. The real real quote's coming in on the screen. Um, The prophet has only the hope that the ache of God could penetrate the numbness of history. He engages not in scare or threat, but only in a yearning that grows with and out of pain. His hope is that the ache of God would penetrate the numbness of history. And I think sometimes we have to be honest about the ache that is going on in the world, the ache of God for the world, to penetrate the numbness that we all live in. And when we're honest about it, when we sit with people, and, and, and when we sit with ourselves in the pain that we're actually feeling, it opens up something deep within us. And that, then we can move into proclaiming the deeper reality. See, that's, that's the book of Revelation. The ache of the people reading it, is, it and, and the ache of God for them is penetrating the numbness of what they're going through. It reminds us that there's one on the throne ruling, that there's the sevenfold spirit of God with us. That there's a slain lamb who can open the scroll and bring this all about. The kingdom of God. That's what Jesus was talking about. In, in Luke 8, 1, after this, Jesus traveled from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. What, what does John see through the door? He sees the kingdom of God, the one seated on the throne, the, the Trinity. The way the kingdom functions is, is the Son of God lays down his life. The Lamb is slain, and that opens the plan of God for history. It was the message of the early church, the kingdom of God. In fact, the last verse in the book of Acts, Acts 28, 31, he, Paul, proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Remember that in the throne room of God, the sea of glass, the chaos that we all feel down here is calm because the kingdom of God is in place. And as we're honest about the pain, as we proclaim in a deeper, as we proclaim a deeper reality, one of the ways we navigate the tension between those two, because we want to feel the pain honestly and be honest about it, we also want to proclaim the reality of what's behind the door. One of the ways we navigate that is by keeping the deeds of the slain lamb. Remember last week, chapter 2, verse 26, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, I will give authority over the nation. See, this is the paradox of Jesus. I talked about it a little bit earlier. His power is that of sacrificial love and dying for us. And that's not really understood by the culture that we live in. Power and weakness in our culture are opposites. How many high schools? I, we have the Hope Mustangs, right? And, and uh, Ron, I heard you say you want a basketball story. I'll get one. Revelation, is, there's lots of basketball stories in Revelation, believe me. But how many high schools, the Hope, school, Hope Secondary Mustangs, right, this power and strength and wildness, and here we go. How many high schools have the slain lamb? How many times have you walked into a high school and seen a lamb with its throat slit and blood? All we don't, That's not power to us. How many hockey games do you go to it and the fans get up and start chanting, crucify us, crucify us? Cru-? It just doesn't happen. Right? Because our idea of victory and power is radically different than, the, than, than what God's is. We are so steeped in our understanding of power and victory. And yet Jesus says, as the Father sent me, that's the way I'm sending you, to keep my deeds. It enables us to feel the brokenness of the world and yet proclaim a different reality. You see, all these people reading this book for the first time were suffering and 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 people were dying for following the Lamb. And they were saying, It doesn't look like we're winning. And John says, Open the door, look in here. Look at the chaos is calm. There's there's a God who has a plan for all of creation, and this slain lamb, believe it or not, this dead, slain lamb who's risen again is the one who's opening these scrolls that we're gonna see. In five, six, seven, eight, on and beyond. Jesus said in John 18, when he's standing before Pilate, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He's saying it's, it's behind the door. It's a different way. It's, it's here, but it's underneath and behind. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. He says, if, if my kingdom was like your kingdom, they would fight like you guys. But it's not. It's different. It's the kingdom of a slain lamb who, who loves by serving, who sacrifices his own life and gains victory That way. And as you begin to reorient your life around this truth, as there's this thing deep within us, as we begin to feel the brokenness of the world and yet know there is a reality that will overcome and transcend and make that new, our reaction is that we join in the ripple of worship. We feel the pain of the broken world. We see the lamb who is worthy and we begin to trust that the one on the throne will see us through this. We give ourselves to his purposes. Romans 12, 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, right? Here's that sacrificial idea. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. You're joining in the ripple of worship as you lay down your life for the world. Chapter 5, verse 13. Then I heard every creature in heaven And on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. We join in that what's happening behind the door in the throne room of heaven as we begin to grasp it, as we feel the pain, as we see the lamb who came and felt that pain and overcame it then we begin to join in that as as the, the creation sings and the elders sing a new song and the angels join in, we hear that and we, through our lives, through our sacrificial following of Jesus, through keeping of the deeds, we join in that ripple of worship that keeps pointing the world past our circumstances through the door to the one who's seated on the throne. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for this vision that is behind what we experience today. We're thankful that you um, give us glimpses of that sometimes. I wish we could see it more. I do pray for us as people that we could, especially during this pandemic time when when there's fear and anxiety and uncertainty, that we could grasp your victory, that we could be honest about the pain of the world, that we could not try to minimize it with little religious sayings or, or cliches that just make us feel better, but that we could... Fully embrace the suffering of the world and see how your love, your grace, your sacrifice of yourself has made a way for that to all be transformed and made new. And God, as we continue journeying through Revelation, as we start seeing the clash of kingdoms and the pain that comes out of that, just keep us focused on the fact that one day you will return, as it says in chapter 21, and you will make all things new. Let that hope inspire in us a faithfulness to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.